Hey, unless this is a nude lovin', get the hell off my property. <laughs> you can't own property, man. I can, but that's because I'm not a penniless hippie. The views and opinions expressed on the following show are those of raving lunatics and do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or its advertisers. Nothing you hear should be construed as legal or medical advice. I've got one that can see. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Power don't come from a badge or a gun. Power comes from the lie. Lying big and getting the whole damn world to play along with you. Once you got everybody agreeing with what they know in their hearts ain't true, you've got them by the balls. There are no sides. There's no Sunnis and Shiites. There's no Democrats and Republicans. There's only haves and have-nots. I move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah. That's why you're the judge and I'm the law-talking guy. The lawyer. Right. If there's one thing America needs, it's more lawyers. Can you imagine a world without lawyers? Oh, listen, Seth. I'm more militant than you and your whole damn army put together. Why you out there chanting at rallies and browbeating politicians? I'm taking out any money front sucker on a humble that gets in my way. So I tell you what. When your so-called revolution starts, you call me. And I'll be right down front showing you how it's done. But until then, you need to shut the f*** up when grown folks is talking. You are listening to Live Free FM. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, sentient creations of all shapes, colors, and sizes, this is the Live Free FM radio show. We're broadcasting live. Today is Sunday, the 26th of... May 2013, and we are going out live on Truth Frequency Radio Network, also being simulcast on UCY.TV and Unbound Radio. I want to say a big thank you to everybody that's carrying the show, and a huge thank you to everybody that's joined us and is listening in the chat room. Real quick, I'm going to give a shout out to everybody that's there early. It looks like we got B3, my homie Ghost Dog is there, JJ Inc. is there, Cross LePage, Super Sam is there, and a whole bunch of anonymous listeners. Everybody that's tuned in and uh, joined in the chat room, much love to you. Everybody that's listening to the archive, much love to you. And everybody that's listening in on any of the affiliate stations that are carrying the show, much love to you. Tonight we have what is going to be a very, very interesting conversation. And uh, it's going to be about a topic that is, I want to say, I don't want to say widely disputed, but there are certain things even inside the liberty movement, inside of the libertarian movement, that uh, people are very divided on. And one of those things is intellectual property. And we've got a gentleman tonight, Stefan Kinsella. Am I saying that correct? You said it perfectly right, Nathan. Thank you. All right, sweet. We've got Stefan Kinsella, who 
authored a book that really made me rethink a lot of my positions and is really <laughs> I have to admit the cognitive dissonance dissonance that I that I experienced while reading against intellectual property it was not very comfortable but I forced myself through it and I'm very glad that I actually did so without any further ado Stefan I'd like you to introduce yourself introduce what it is that you do and what it was that drew you or or prompted you to write this book Sure, I'd be glad to. I'm a, um, I'm an attorney in Houston and a longtime libertarian uh, writer and uh, activist, and uh, have for quite a while been a strong opponent of uh, intellectual property law from a private property, pro free market point of view. And you know what drew me to it was I'm actually a patent lawyer and an IP lawyer, and so I started thinking about this. You know, back in the say early '90s, and uh, the all the arguments for, for IP law, patents and copyrights, basically, that I heard did not satisfy me. They seemed to be there's something wrong with them. So I thought about it for a long time, looked into it, researched it, finally came to my my current view, which is that patent and copyright law are completely antithetical to the free market and private property rights, and should be completely abolished. Uh, they're completely fascist, completely statist, completely protectionist, um, completely contrary to you know, freedom, individual rights, and private property rights. Um, it's not an easy view to arrive at, which, so I understand you struggling t- to think about this because we're told that it's a type of property right. It's called intellectual property rights, and we're supposed to be in favor of property rights because we're libertarians and private property advocates. But just because the government and advocates of a a certain type of monopoly system call something a property right does not mean that it's a legitimate type of property right. So your book, Against Intellectual Property, it's it's written – you can tell that you're a lawyer, and a lot of my listeners have a very bad opinion of lawyers – um, but we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna ignore that for the time being. But uh, your book is it's written from a, a legal standpoint, which it's not the easiest thing for everybody to get through. I really would recommend everybody reading it. Uh, where can people go and check it out? And uh, where can people go and check out? Uh, I know I know that you also do a podcast yourself, and, and you cover a lot of these subjects. So where can people check out more of your work if they're interested? Yeah, I do have a general podcast called Kinsella on Liberty, which is at stephankinsella.com, S-T-E-P-H-A-N, uh, Kinsella, K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A. And I also have a, um, a group called Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, C4SIF.org. That's the number four. And on that site, C4SIF.org, I have lots of resources, um, videos, audio, talks, podcasts, um, short, short uh, articles – about IP, you know, from different angles, explaining why it's such a, a, a danger to, to liberty and why it's totally incompatible with uh, private property rights. And, yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm not a big fan of lawyers either. Um, and the article that you mentioned is a very long scholarly article. It's informed by a working knowledge of what the law is because we have to understand what the law is to, to, under, to you know, to criticize it or to to support it. Um, but, but my argument, I don't think, is a lawyer argument. It's more of a libertarian argument. It's like saying, listen, if we agree with private property rights, then here is why these laws that the government has foisted on us cannot be compatible with our basic human liberties and human rights. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes down to it, let's just kind of start off the conversation by defining what makes intellectual property different from actual physical property and why physical property should be respected and ownership of physical or or control of physical property or claim to physical property should be respected while, in your argument, physical uh, property is different from intellectual property where intellectual property the ownership and the right to control intellectual property should not be respected. Sure. I mean, there's not much dispute among most civilized people that we need to have property rights in material or scarce resources. That's things that we have to use in the world to get things done, like you know, houses and cars and chairs and even our own bodies, um, piece of land, etc. So we all, almost everyone agrees that we need to be able to use these things. There is a possibility of conflict or dispute over them because of the nature of these resources. And so that we can use them peacefully and productively and cooperatively, that we have property rights to say who can use this resource. Um, the problem with IP law, as we call it, intellectual property law, first of all, it was never called intellectual property originally. This is a modern label slapped on it as a propaganda technique by the advocates of these monopoly privileges. Basically, we're talking about copyright and patent. Now, there are other types like trademark and trade secret, but the more you talk about these things, people's eyes start glazing over and they start thinking you're talking like a lawyer. And I understand that, and that's fine. Uh, The problem is if you want to argue for and defend these things, you need to know what you're talking about, and you need to define them carefully. So let's just talk about patent and copyright. Patent and copyright are two fairly recent in the history of man um, type of uh, property rights or legal innovations. Basically, they originated – copyright originated when the government was trying to control uh, freedom of thought and freedom of the press. They did not want people to spread ideas that the government and the church didn't control. So it was a type of censorship, basically. This this is the origin of copyright. And the origin of patent is in the, the, you know, the, the government or the crown, the monarch, granting monopoly privileges to, to favored cronies of the court, like saying, you're the only guy that can sell sheepskin, uh, or you're the only guy that can sell playing cards in this area. It's just a monopoly, something that almost everyone recognizes is completely contrary to the free market. And censorship of copyright is completely contrary to human rights and human liberties. So what happened was these things got institutionalized, uh, copyright by the Statute of Anne in 1709 and patent by the Statute of Monopolies in, in 1623. And then when the America was uh, founded, uh, the modern American uh, republic uh, the, the Constitution in 1789 enshrined these monopoly ideas in, in a clause in the Constitution. But they weren't called property. They were just called, you know, the Congress shall have the right to grant these limited privileges for a certain amount of time. Um, and when they became under attack from economists and other people who realized these were just monopoly privileges granted by the government, they started calling them intellectual property to kind of try to cover them under the rubric of property rights. Everyone's in favor of property, so if you call it property, then you've got to be in favor of it. So the problem is that it's got the wrong name. I mean, look, you could have ownership of another human being. That's called property, right, under shadow slavery. But that doesn't mean it's legitimate. So just because the government and advocates of a certain regime slap the word property on something does not mean that it's a legitimate type of property. So... 
I guess uh, if we can go back to like where the I don't want to say necessity, but where the concept came from, um, some people would argue that if if uh, somebody's producing something and the consumer that's that's the end result person that's getting that produ- or product, they want to know where it's coming from. They want to know that it's coming from the place that they think it's coming from. They don't want to be frauded. Yes. They, they would say that some people might argue, um, you know, only Levi's should be able to put the little Levi's trademark or branding on their jeans to make sure that when you buy Levi's, you're actually getting Levi's. And even though we have those laws, it doesn't stop things like counterfeiting or uh, black market type of stuff. But um, as far as people wanting to make sure that what they're buying is coming from the actual person that they think it's coming from, do you think it's possible to solve that problem without having an intellectual property, uh, you know, law system? So so what you're talking about is what's covered by what's called trademark law, which is one of the four kind of classic types of intellectual property law. The, the four classic types of IP law would be patents, copyrights, trademarks, and trade secrets. And there's other uh, novel ones uh, in the modern age, statutory creations like boat hole designs and database rights and moral rights and um, uh, other things like this. Um, trademark is – Look, the, 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 the two big problems are patent and copyright, which is control of thought and control of innovation. Trademark, everyone sort of assumes that it's not as big of a problem, and it's not as big of a problem, but it is still a problem. In my view, trademark law, most libertarians, if, even if they agree with me that we should abolish patent and copyright, okay, which is a monopoly privilege in inventions and a monopoly privilege in – certain patterns of information, which is artistic creations, which is what copyright covers. Most most libertarians would say, well, we're against fraud, so we're, we, we should be in favor of trademark law. So they have this assumption that trademark law's basic function is to sort of um, uh, prohibit people from defrauding customers. But the problem with that argument is that, first of all, people don't understand trademark law or copyright law or patent law, and they – you, they routinely confuse them with each other, as you just did. I mean, I'm not blaming you. These things are confusing. But you'll hear people talk about plagiarism, which has nothing to do with trademark or copyright or patent. Um, and plagiarism is just a private matter. You'll hear all these things being mixed together because no one really understands them, and yet they still are leery or reluctant to get rid of them. Trademark law is usually said to prevent a a, a company from defrauding a customer. But the problem with that argument is that we already have a law against fraud. It's just called fraud law. So if, if that's what you're really against, all we need is fraud law. What trademark law does is, is it does several things that are problematic. Number one, it permits a company to sue another company, a competitor, even when that company that is suing has not been defrauded. Right? At most, the customer's been defrauded. So, for example, let's say – I don't know. Let's say you're Mercedes and you're selling Mercedes cars, and let's say some Chinese company starts selling knockoff Mercedes cars, and they sell them to customers. Now, maybe the customer is defrauded, and they're, buy, they're, they're going to Shanghai, and they're buying a Mercedes knockoff for $5,000, and they, they're really so stupid that they think that they're getting a real Mercedes. I mean <laughs> – it's, it's just implausible, but let's just say that the customer is being defrauded. 
Well, then the customer should have a cause of action. That's called fraud. Why should Mercedes have a cause of action? They're not the ones being defrauded. So that's one problem with, with trademark law being substituted as a proxy for fraud. And number two, trademark law does not require there to be fraud. It only requires there to be some likelihood of consumer confusion. And as I just showed in this example, you and I both know that the consumer in this case is not really being defrauded. Or if you buy a $20 Rolex knockoff on the streets of New York from some guy in the back of his van, you know, no one really thinks they're getting a real Rolex. So there is actually no fraud. So there's no you can't hook trademark laws legitimacy onto some kind of fraud claim. And then, of course, there's the fact that it's unconstitutional because the, the, the Constitution doesn't authorize uh, trademark law. It only authorizes uh, patent and copyright. And further, that it has other extensions in recent times, such as anti-dilution, which has nothing whatsoever to do with uh, cons even a possibility of consumer confusion, much less fraud. So in my view, trademark law is another tool used to suppress competition and to censor free speech and to bully smaller people and smaller companies and should be completely and immediately abolished, as should trade secret law in my view too, but that's getting into the weeds a little bit. But uh, I'd say copyright is the big baddie. Patent is number two. Trademark is a far third and trade secret is a far fourth. So when you say that uh, that in that particular instance that we were talking about where somebody buys something and even if they are foolish enough to think that they're getting the actual thing and they buy the knockoff Mercedes and they get home and the Mercedes falls apart and Mercedes wants to claim that they do have a cause of action because now your, your vision of Mercedes being fooled into thinking that that was a Mercedes, now you think Mercedes is, is a crap car and you go and you talk – you tell, you know, word of mouth gets around that you bought a Mercedes and it was, it fell apart because it was a piece of junk, then that would kind of get into, if they tried to have a cause of action, that would kind of get into them thinking that, um, that you, they have a right to uh, control their reputation, which is another source of yes. contention. Yes. So, so there's, first of all, there's two things here. You can see from the example we gave that I think it's completely, it's, it's just ridiculous to believe that anyone's really going to believe this. In other words, um, in reality, no one is ever going to be fooled by this. I mean, the only way you're actually going to be fooled is if someone takes the time to build an entire Mercedes distributorship that looks identical to the original. I mean, this takes millions of dollars. And they know that as soon as they do this, then the word's going to spread that they're, they're, they're a ripoff company and they're, they're not going to make any sales. So who would invest in this kind of company? I mean, the reality is that when – so let's say we have a McDonald's starts um, spreading or Mercedes. Let's say Mercedes is a popular car company. Well, you know, BMW might spread up, sprout up as an alternative. The guy that starts BMW is going to want to put his name on it, and then Audi is going to want to put their name on theirs, and Volkswagen is going to put their name on theirs, and then Toyota. I mean, people that start these companies. But if they're going to put millions of dollars into it and they want to start a new company, they want to have their own identity. So it's just completely unrealistic to imagine that this would happen. But even if it did happen, again, the victim would be the consumer. And even in the rare case where the consumer is so gullible or, I don't know, uh, simple-minded that they having a bad opinion of Mercedes because some knockoff company fooled this consumer – even though Mercedes in a free market would have no remedy to stop it. In other words, it's not their fault that some, someone's out there defrauding customers. Um, 
Mercedes doesn't have a property right in the value of their name. This is another problem with um, a, another type of IP law, which we, which you alluded to, called defamation, or uh, or um, or libel or slander. In other words, the idea that you have a right, a property right in the in the value of your reputation. The problem with that view, as Murray Rothbard pointed out in the Ethics of Liberty, is that a reputation is just what other people think about you, right? And so, if a consumer wants to think poorly of Mercedes, they have every right in the world to do that. And they also have a, a right of free speech. They have a right to tell people what they believe. And if other people want to be persuaded by that or take their opinion into account, they have the right to do that too. And if Mercedes loses a sale because people have a low opinion of Mercedes, Mercedes did not have a property right in that potential sale because that's the money from a, the customer's pocket, a, a potential customer's pocket. So there's no property rights you know, issue here at all. It's just like if I steal your girlfriend, I didn't literally steal anything from you. If 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 Audi or Volkswagen steals a customer from Mercedes, they didn't literally steal anything that Mercedes had a property right in. So that's the problem with trademark and with defamation law. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, a lot of people, even in the current liberty movement, get confused. And, and we saw a lot of confusion about this particular issue come up recently with the whole ronpaul.com thing, where a lot of people were arguing just because the website had Ron Paul's name that he had, and, and it could influence people's opinion of Ron Paul, that he had a right to have that website domain name. How did you fall on that? Uh, which aisle of the Which side of the aisle did you fall on? in that particular argument? Well, I think there's, I mean, in a free society, you're supposed to be able to try to convince people what you believe. So if you want to have a website that tries to persuade people of good or bad things about Ron Paul or anyone else, I mean, that's just freedom of speech and freedom of action. Um, and in this particular case, there's no even plausible claim of, uh, claim of fraud because... The owners of the domain ronpaul.com and ronpaul.org had for years had prominent disclaimers specifying that they were not authorized by Ron Paul or his campaign. They were a private site. So there's just no plausible claim of fraud whatsoever. The, the problem here is that we have a state a status system, right? We have a state-run system, 200 governments in the world dominated by the U.S., and the U.S. is entrenched with IP law, trademark, patent, copyright, and other types of IP law. And when the U.S. Um, uh, uh, sort of controlled the, the modern uh, domain name system with ICANN, they basically insisted that ICANN incorporate a set of rules to basically enforce trademark law. So what you have is you have these UDRP, uh, Uniform Domain Name Resolution Protocol, uh, rules in place. They seem like they're arbitration or private rules or contractual rules, but they were foisted on the whole system of the Internet by the, um, by the, 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 the U.S., basically. So, so basically the UDRP and the ICANN is a trademark enforcement mechanism. So the, so what happened was Ron Paul actually used – it was equivalent to him suing someone in a state court for a trademark claim, okay, so which would be equivalent to suing someone for copyright or for defamation law or for patent law. 
And the, there are laws in place. It's not a illegitimate lawsuit in that sense, but it's taking it, – it, it would be like suing someone for antitrust law. It would be like a prosecutor uh, trying to prosecute someone for selling cocaine. I mean the, there are laws on the books that allow you to do these things. There are laws on the books that allow you to hurt innocent people using invalid laws foisted on the system by the government, and that's what happened in this case. And is since we're talking about ICANN and we're talking about the Internet in general, is our uh, our vision, we've only got about two minutes before the next break, is our vision, the way that our country usually approaches intellectual property, is that like a worldwide thing or are we, um, are we kind of exclusive or, or how does the, the concept of intellectual property fall on all of the other Internet users throughout the world? Well, it's, I mean, it was sort of an emerging system in the, let's say, 1600s, and then you know the the United States adopted uh, the modern system in the uh, late 1700s in our constitution, and because of our dominance and because of the rise of the Western uh, systems, um, our, our approach has has tended to to lead the way, and we have spearheaded a bunch of inter- international treaties, which you know which. Ha- so, so, which have tried to foist our types of controls on the rest of the world. So most of the Western world has a similar type of system as we do, and there's a whole network of international treaties which obligate member countries to have certain minimum standards of IP control. So, for example, one ironic or hypocritical thing would be um, let, let's say I point out one problem with American copyright law, which is the most oppressive and fascist in the world, um, although the, the rest of the world is, is close behind. Um, let's say I point out that one problem is that ever since the late 80s, we've had a system of automatic copyright. Um, before that, you had to actually register copyright, like you had to actually file a registration like you do for patents now, or you had to put a copyright notice under the current system, it's automatic, and whether you whether you register is irrelevant, and whether you put a copyright notice is really irrelevant. And even if you don't want a copyright, you can't really get rid of it. So basically, there's a system now of automatic copyright with, with what's called no formalities. Okay, this is the late 80s. And this is because of the Berne Convention, which America, of course, foisted on the world, and of course we signed on to it. So if, if we were to persuade Congress right now to you know what? go back to the... Hold on. Yeah. We're going to have to hold that thought, Stephon, or Stephen. Uh, we're coming up on a break. We'll be back with more discussion on copyrights, patents, and intellectual property all together. This is Live Free FM. Don't go anywhere. The conversation's just going to get better.
right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the show. This is Live Free FM. I'm your host, Nathan Frazier, and we're broadcasting live on Truth Frequency Radio Network. We're also broadcasting on UCY.TV. I want to say a huge thank you to Jules for making that possible. And on Unbound Radio. Dot com. I want to, th- I think I might be incorrect about that. Before we jump back into the conversation, I want to give a shout out to everybody that's joined us new in the chat room. It looks like Dances with Poles is there. What's up? Much love. Uh, Joe Friday is there. Jules is there. Cross LePage, Learner of Skill, Mike SLC, uh, Listener, I, I assume, uh, Keb, and vi4031.net is there as well. And a bunch of, we just got a ton of an anonymous listeners, so much love to everybody that's joined us tonight and um, is enjoying this conversation. We've got Stefan Kinsella, and we are talking about intellectual property. And Stefan, before we went to the break, you were talking about how our modern concept of the idea and the modern legal system around the idea of IP is kind of a new uh, a new concept and a new legal system. It's something that's emerging. And you were talking about the way that it used to be and then the changes that have come into bringing us what you say and I agree is a very fascist, um, a very fascist set of laws as far as yeah. as far as ownership of ideas goes. Yeah, I don't throw the word fascist around lightly. To me, fascism is a, is a system of, of state control where there's nominal private ownership and the government sort of insidiously behind the scenes tells you what to do with it. And that is basically what IP is because, I mean, it's hard to uh, – we could take a whirlwind kind of tour of the history of this. Um, one One reason that – copyright was in favor originally was because it was a way for authors to get control back from the censorship of the guilds. So, you know, you had the, the, the stationer's company, for example, in England, which could decide which manuscripts could be published. And when their monopoly ran out after about a century and there was a debate about whether it was going to be renewed, some of the authors were in favor of a private copyright because they thought to themselves – I'm the one who gets to decide whether I can make a copy of this. It wasn't really to restrict it. It was to be the ones who could decide. And something similar happened with patents, actually. There was all these um, uh, sort of protectionist type of uh, uh, guilds uh, which would control you know, which goods could be made. So if you could get a patent from the crown to make a certain good, you could break free of the control of these protectionist guilds. So one of the reasons people initially favored copyright and patent was to break free of the sort of protectionist, monopolistic, sensorial controls of the sort of guild, state, church network. Um, but it's it's sort of morphed into the modern system, which has just reinstituted controls um, all over again. And in the current system, what I was just pointing out was that the ironic thing is, say, if I point out that we need to go back to the 1980 or 1970 or 60 system of copyright, which was a much shorter copyright term, and you had to actually ask for a copyright. Uh, you had to like apply for it, register for it, and put a copyright notice. Unlike the current system, which is automatic, uh, the Congress actually could not even amend the law, arguably, um, to do that because it would be a violation of international law. Why? Because we signed on to the Berne Convention. Why? Because we foisted it on the whole world. 
So in other words, we, we shackled our, ourselves with this international treaty called the Berne Convention, which requires us to have a copyright system um, that has no formalities. So it would probably be a violation of international law if Congress were even to modify the copyright system to reduce the copyright term significantly or to get rid of these ridiculous um, automatic copyrights. In other words, if we adopted the original copyright like we had called the founder's copyright, which was like a 14-year copyright, which could be renewed one time if you asked for it for 14 more years, so 28 years total, that would be much, much shorter than than what we have now, which is over 100 years, that would probably be illegal under, the, under international law. So we, we basically shackled ourselves. And now so Congress can throw their hands up and say, well, it's not our fault. We, we, can't, we have to respect international law. But they're the ones that foisted this international obligation on us by agreeing to the Berne Convention in the first place. So if we can, um, I, I guess one of the things that you really had a tremendous impact in bringing to light in my mind, and I'll kind of give my own version of it to the listeners, but basically if we compared uh, intellectual property to actual property, the way intellectual property works is if if I create something and you buy it from me, I have absolute control over how you can use it, and not even that much. I have absolute control of over anybody who didn't even purchase that per- particular thing from me can use it. So if it was physical property um, as opposed to an idea or a book or a CD or something like that, if it was like a uh, a can of paint and you bought the can of paint from me, if we treated it the way that the same way that we treat intellectual property, I would be able to say you're not allowed to mix colors together to get that same color of paint. You're not allowed to paint anybody's house unless you first get permission from me. You're not allowed to let your neighbors borrow the can of paint. And people would say that that's completely ridiculous on physical, tangible property. They'd say, no, I bought the can of paint. Therefore, it's my decision to, to use it how I will. And with intellectual property, for some reason, we have a different, like, reality gets skewed, and all of a sudden it's okay for the people who sold us the service to control how we use that service. No, that's exactly right. This is because intellectual property is unreal. In other words, it's it's, it's not corresponding reality, so you're going to have breakdowns. Um, In in the pre-internet, pre-digital age, you didn't see these this, this this dissonance as much, but now you're seeing it more and more. So, for example, if I sold you a book, okay, it's a tangible physical book, but that's what a book was in the pre-internet age, right? But now there's copies of a book which are not the physical book. So you could sort of, in the old days, analogize it uh, the way copyright worked. You could you could say it's like a license or some kind of co-ownership in this physical thing. Because you know it's it's hard to copy it, et cetera. Um, and if I sell you a book, then I could say you can't make a copy of it, and you don't want to make a copy anyway. It's too hard to do it. Nowadays, there's a there's a association between the pattern of information in the book and the physical thing. So when you have property in the in the pattern of information, you start having weird effects. So for example, um, there's been two recent Supreme Court cases which had an effect on what uh, you're talking about. One was in copyright and one was in patent. In copyright, there's something called the uh, first sale doctrine, which says that if I sell you a book, then I've exhausted my copyright in that one sale, and you can resell that physical book. You can't make a copy of it, 
but you could resell that one book. Well, there's a glitch in the federal copyright law, which it makes it not clear whether that first sale doctrine applies if the item was made outside the U.S. because the way the statute is worded, because it's just not clear whether that first sale happened. So there was a big uncertainty in the law until the recent um, case was decided like just a few months ago. And the concern was that if the first sale doctrine was eviscerated for foreign manufactured things, then millions and millions of books in libraries, for example, that were made overseas would not be able to be loaned by the library anymore. I mean, it would be, and if you bought, let's say, a car, literally like a Toyota, let's say, made in Japan, well, there's lots of copyright protected aspects of that car, you know, the software in the, in the, in the ROM, under the hood, et cetera. Um, then you couldn't resell your own car, literally. I'm not joking. This was a concern. Now, luckily, the court finally decided to extend the, um, the uh, first sale doctrine to foreign works, but it was just sort of a fluke. Um, but in just uh, like two weeks ago in the Monsanto case in the patent area, a similar case for patents was decided the other way. And what the court said was that if a farmer buys seeds from a granary, okay? He buys seeds that were patented by Monsanto. So let's say Monsanto sells some seeds covered by a patent, someone buys them, and then they resell them, which they have the right to do. Then the guy that buys them cannot replant them and make a new crop of seeds because that's making a new crop of patented seeds, and he doesn't have the right to do that. Um, and the court sided with Monsanto, nine, the Supreme Court, nine to zero, just the other day, a unanimous decision. So you're exactly right. Basically, the implications of copyright and patent is that you really don't own what you buy because you can't do whatever you want with it. So if I buy some seeds, I can eat. It'd be like buying a potato from the supermarket and you could make mashed potatoes with them, but you can't make baked potatoes. Literally. I mean, and if you make baked potatoes, you can go to federal prison for 50 years or pay a million-dollar fine. And that's not even an exaggeration. I mean, the, the statutory penalties for copyright violation um, and the penalties for patent violation are astronomical. And, in fact, in my view, I believe patent and copyright law are both unconstitutional for a couple of reasons. Number one, they were in the 1789 co uh, Constitution, right? But if you think about it, Two years later, the Constitution was amended by the Bill of Rights, right, the, 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 the ten amendments to the, to the Constitution, the, the, the first ten uh, amendments. Mm -hmm. And the First Amendment is freedom of speech, and the Fifth Amendment is due process. The Eighth Amendment is about cruel and unusual punishment and excessive fines. Uh, the Fourth Amendment is about property rights in your papers and your person. And in my view, all of those are implicated by the, 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 the modern patent and copyright statutes. In other words, there is no doubt whatsoever, in fact, the Supreme Court has recognized this, that the, that the First Amendment, I mean, that copyright law, for example, infringes freedom of speech because it tells you you cannot print this book. In fact, copyright law has been used to actually literally ban the publication of certain movies or books or actually cause them to be destroyed. I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever that it's pure thought control. So what the courts say is that, well, we have these two provisions of the Constitution. We have free speech in the First Amendment, and we have copyright in the, in the 1789 Constitution. So there's a tension between them. 
So we have to balance them because we have no choice. So they try to come up with a balancing test to like sort of say, well, we have that one of the other. But my view is that the 1791 Bill of Rights came two years after the 1789 Constitution. And therefore, if there's a conflict between those two, the later provision rules, just like with any, with any statute or any constitutional provision. So, for example, we used to have prohibition right in the early 1900s, and then we decided to change our minds. So we passed a new constitutional amendment to overturn prohibition. Now, why do we have no prohibition now? Because the later amendment prevails. This is the standard canon of statutory or constitutional interpretation. So I am a little bit mystified why constitutionalists and libertarians are not all over this. We should point out vigorously that the Eighth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the First Amendment, which are all variously conflicting with patent and copyright law, came two years after, and therefore they should prevail. We should, we should favor free speech over the censorship of copyright. We should favor free speech over the censorship of patent law. We should favor property rights over the takings of the statutory damages of copyright law and the outrageous takings of property of the patent system. And you brought something up that I wanted to go back to and touch on, and that's the idea of uh, you were talking about Monsanto and copywriting seeds, and uh, now there's Pat- patenting. Sorry, patenting. Oh yeah, patenting. And now there's uh, rumors of people patenting genes, and there's rumors of people patenting yes. diseases. To where if you've got some sort of cure for a disease, you have to go and find the person that owns the patent on the disease before you're even allowed to actually yes. test your cure out. How is it that people are able to patent now? naturally occurring things like that but because it's permitted by the patent statute i mean everyone blames the courts and the lawyers but and, and even the companies who take advantage of this but to be honest i i actually don't blame the supreme court for their monsanto decision they actually were doing a fairly i, I don't know how you would construe the patent statute any other way i mean if i would be on the court i would probably vote against it just on like jury nullification type grounds or higher law type grounds. But really, if you're just interpreting what the law says and what the Constitution says, that's what it says. Um, in fact, there, I think the ACLU or the EFF is right now fighting against um, um, some of these gene patents, which are literally preventing people from um, engaging in scientific research for, I think, uh, br- breast cancer or some other types of things because of these gene patents. Um, it's just the... The, the way the patent statute is written, if you come up with a novel and useful and non-obvious, they call it non-obvious, um, uh, you know, uh, article of manufacture or composition of matter or method or, or machine, then you can get a patent on it, which means a, monop- a monopoly right to practice it, which means you can stop other people from doing it unless they pay you, unless they pay you money. And, in fact, you can actually get an injunction it's not even just the right to demand a payment. It's the right to get a court order, an injunction to stop people. So this is what people don't understand. People complain about patent trolls. And let me just define what a patent troll is. I mean the, the, the metaphor comes from the idea of if you want to cross a bridge, there's a troll under it, right? He demands a toll, right? You've got to pay him a fee to cross the bridge. And a patent troll is what we call an NPE, a non-practicing entity. Okay, unlike, let's say, Apple or Motorola, who has patents that cover their actual products. So if, if you try to make an iPhone, let's say, or something similar to an iPhone, you might get sued by Apple because you're trying to compete with them. 
know, everyone sort of thinks that's okay. It's okay that Apple can stop you from competing with them, but if you're just some patent troll and you just buy up patents that cover an iPhone and you demand a fee from someone who wants to make an iPhone, that that's wrong. Now, this is completely backwards in my view. In fact, a patent troll is better than, than a practicing entity because the patent troll just wants a fee. They're like a tax. They want to impose a tax, but they'll let you go on your way. They're like Lysander Spooner's highwayman, right? He just wants to take a little bit of fee from you but let you go on your way unmolested. Apple doesn't want to get a fee from you. They want to stop competitors, and they will use an injunction from the courts to stop people from competing with them, right, unless it's a competitor who's is big enough to hit them back with another injunction like, Motor, like uh, Motorola or Samsung um, or, or Google or whatever. You know? So then you have these big companies suing each other. They finally settle, they fi- and, and then all the little companies can't even – they can't even get in the game. They can't spend $50 million on a lawsuit. Um, so this is the problem with patent trolls. This is the problem with the patent system. It allows ex- legal extortion uh, to be engaged in, but, but but my point is, you, you know, you really can't blame Apple for taking advantage of it or these other companies. This is the system we, that we have. You know, if you're a manager or a director or an executive at Apple, what are you supposed to do? Uh, tell your shareholders, we have a fifty million dollar lawsuit that we could we could we could take advantage of right now, but we're not going to do it on principled grounds because we're libertarians. I mean, you know, it's just not going to happen. Or if they did that, they would get sued with a derivative action or they would get fired. I mean, if it's like saying if we have a welfare system, no one should sign up for welfare. That's The problem is not people that respond to legal incentives. The problem is the legal incentives that we have and the legal system that we have in place. Well, and a lot of people argue that we need those legal incentives. We need that, you call it a monopoly on the expression of an idea or the use of an idea. And people say we need that to encourage innovation. But it seems like from all the examples that you're bringing up, how much money are they spending on on their legal team that they could be spending on research and development? How many small companies could come out and bring us new and innovative products that can't because they're afraid of, of being sued? It seems like... The justification is that we need IP to encourage innovation, but it seems like it's doing the exact opposite. Well, okay, so there's a couple of things. Um, the larger companies, it is a drag on their business, like let's say Apple, for, for example, and Microsoft. But they're probably overall helped by it because it helps to winnow down the competition. Only the very large companies can afford to into the game. In other words, IP erects barriers to competition, and they can take advantage of that. Just like the minimum wage law, or pro-union laws, or tariffs, or high tax laws, the larger companies can afford to just deal with it. But smaller companies cannot. So, for example, Walmart is in favor of increasing the uh, the minimum wage. Now, why is that? Because Walmart already pays above the minimum wage. So, if you increase the minimum wage by a dollar or two. It won't cost Walmart anything, but it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt their their smaller competitors. So you have these companies that are in favor of these things that that ostensibly look like they're anti big business, but they're really, you know, they're really not. They really they help entrench the big companies, and then the smaller companies, or the startups, or the new entrants, you just never see them. This is Bastiat, right, and Hazlitt. This is the the seen and the unseen. So we see. 
these alleged costs that are imposed upon Microsoft and Apple, although they really help them. I mean, this is like uh, throwing the rabbit into the into the briar patch, right? Don't throw me into the briar patch. You know, they really want these regulations. Um, and then you don't see what the innovation or the the competitors that never emerge because they just can't afford um, the patent battle. Now. You do hear the argument that we need these we need these laws to incentivize creation and innovation, but you never hear anyone come up with any numbers that, that demonstrate this. And in fact, um, we, we just talked about patent trolls. This, some recent studies have shown that patent troll patent trolls alone, which in my view is a minimal part of the patent problem, have cost the economy in America alone about a trillion dollars over the last I think decade. Okay, so a trillion dollars over a decade. That's just patent trolls. And so I think that's like, say, 5% of the problem. So I, I, I literally believe that the patent system is imposing a deadweight cost on innovation and on productivity of at least two, three, four hundred billion dollars a year. Okay, and then the copyright system, in a way, is even worse because. It's harder to measure its cost in terms of money because it's it's more of a distorting effect. It distorts the cultural landscape that we all live in, but it also lasts a lot longer, over a hundred years, and it results in censorship. And it has statutory penalties, which are insane. Um, there's a recent study by uh, a law professor, John Teheranian, and he estimates that every year, and the average person that just uses the internet, like you and I is theoretically liable for $4.5 billion of damages for copyright infringements, okay, for forwarding emails, copying pictures, you know, things like this, $4.5 billion. This is not a joke. This is the result. So copyright is almost even worse, and it is used as an excuse to literally put people in federal prison, you know, for like uploading a copy of the Wolverine movie, or, or, or a guy in England, uh, Richard Dwyer, the student who they're trying to extradite now for having a website with links on it to some other ones, someone else's website with, with so-called pirated material, or the the raid by the CIA, I mean the FBI and uh, two or three other federal agencies uh, with like sixty or seventy agents on Kim.com in New Zealand, and they're trying to extradite him now and put him in federal prison for having a file sharing website, the mega upload website. Um, and using it as an excuse to uh, uh, to control torrenting and copying, like with the PIPA and SOPA laws, and the trademark, uh, sort of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and ACTA, and other international, transnational, and national laws and, and, and treaties. So I, I think actually as bad as patents are, and I would say they cost half a trillion dollars a year at least on the American economy alone. Copyright is even worse because it is setting the stage for a very insidious escalation of the of the police state um, and the control of the internet, which is the most uh, the most important tool we have to fight the state. Um, so, if I could re- re- get rid of copyright or patent, I would have to get rid of copyright first because it is far more insidious and uh, and dangerous. And. Just so that we're clear, you uh, you advocating the abolition of these particular law systems, um, that's actually against your own self-interest because that's what your profession is. 
Yeah, I'm a patent lawyer, and I've done it since 1993 or so. Um, but I, I view my profession and what I do and my specialty as akin to a cancer doctor or a tax lawyer. So, for example, um, presumably an ethical cancer doctor is making money, maybe a lot of money, by helping people fight cancer. But presumably, if he's ethical, he would like there to be a cure for cancer. He would like there to be no cancer, and then he would be out of a job if there was no cancer. Or a tax attorney, you know, let's say Irwin Schiff is my client. I'm trying to keep him out of jail because he just didn't pay his taxes. Or a drug attorney, you know, I'm trying to keep someone out of jail for selling cocaine or smoking marijuana. Um, if, if, if these unjust laws like cocaine laws and tax laws and drug laws were abolished, then tax attorneys and tax accountants and uh, drug law attorneys, defense attorneys would be out of a job. But if you're a libertarian, presumably you want to be out of a job or you want these laws to go away. But in the meantime, you're performing a valuable service and unfortunately expensive and valuable service. So personally, I don't participate in what I view as aggressive uh, lawsuits. In other words, um, I only participate in helping people to arm themselves with patents or to defend themselves with their patents if they're sued for patent infringement. So it's like an arms race. and It's unfortunate, but if you're a small company, a tech company, or a medium-sized company, and if you don't have any patents, then you have no defense if a competitor sues you. Yeah, so it's... you're forced. Yeah, it's like bullets. You know, you're forced to arm yourself. Um, and I personally would participate in an aggressive use, but I, given the system, I see nothing morally wrong with arming yourself and even using your patents defensively. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back on the side uh, the, on the other side. Stefan, do you think that you'll be able to join us for the second hour? Or do you got to go? No, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Okay, sweet. More with Stefan Kinsella on Live Free FM. We'll be right back on the Truth Frequency Radio Network. Are you still clinging to the myth of government that's so last millennium? Still waiting for some great man to come and save you? You're such a square man. Still clinging to blind faith and authority figures? Really? I mean, really? Well, if so, then Live Free FM is not the show for you. Live Free FM! Faith in each other, not in authority! Live Free FM! Welcome to the gross business of martial law. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the show. This is the second hour of Live Free FM for Sunday, the 26th of May. 2013, and we're broadcasting live right here on the Truth Frequency Radio Network. I've got Stefan Kinsella with me, and we've been talking about copyright all night. And Stefan, I actually uh, wanted to bring up something. You were kind of talking about your position as a, a lawyer in this whole thing and how um, this is the system that we have, and uh, while it's there, we do need people that are actively... I guess using the system to protect people because it's set up the way it is. And if there aren't people using it to protect people, then it's just going to go completely haywire. Um, but I, I noticed that um, your, I don't know, I don't want to really call it a book, but your article that you wrote uh, against intellectual property is copyrighted by the Mises Institute. And I've spoken, we've had uh, Larkin Rose on the show before, and he puts a copyright on his books, but he doesn't actually actually actively pursue anybody that copies his books. He actually even encourages people to copy his stuff. The only reason that he um, put the copyright or applied it to his book is because the way the system is, somebody could, if he didn't, somebody could actually copyright his material and then, and then use their copyright to stop him from being able to use his own uh, creation. So that's, that's really where people where people say we need this to protect the creators really the system allows people to go and stop the creators from even using their own creation well actually what you what larkin thinks is actually incorrect um he's kind of confusing patent and copyright law and we can't get too much into the weeds here but that's there's a lot of confusion about the way trademark works, patent works, and copyright works, and plagiarism, and how these things interplay with each other. But it's actually just not true. Um, and the, the other problem is you cannot copyright something. Like I said, in the, in the 80s, we, when we adopted the, uh, the law that implemented the Berne Convention, copyright became automatic. So in other words, as soon as you write something down, on a tangible medium of expression, we call it. Like you, you fix it. You basically write it down. As soon as you do that, you have a copyright in it, whether you want it or not, whether you put a copyright notice on it or not, whether you register it or not. So putting a copyright notice doesn't give you a copyright, and not putting one doesn't take it away. It's almost irrelevant. Um, and second of all, actually, it's just factually not correct. The Mises Institute does not didn't copyright my my book, they, they did put a copyright notice because they, they just don't, you know, a lot of people have bad policy. They don't understand the copyright law. I actually own the copyright in my work, whether or not someone else puts it on there, because I never, I wrote it, so I'm the author, and I never signed an assignment giving it in writing to someone else. So you'll have a lot of, a lot of publishers, they'll just say copyright XYZ, the, the name of the publisher, and they're just actually factually incorrect. They actually don't have a copyright in it. Um, and in fact, I, on my website, if you go to it on, the, on my on my footer, you'll see in my legal disclaimer, stephanconsella.com, you'll see I put a CC0, which means I disclaim all copyright and everything I've ever written that's on my website, including that article. So what happened was over time, I gradually was successful in persuading the Mises Institute and other people that I know to adopt the Creative Commons 
license to try to free up the works as much as possible. Now, when my article came out in 1999 or 2000 and then was republished later, they hadn't quite got their policies up to date yet. Um, but I've done all I can, and I can assure anyone that they can copy it and they, they can even put their name on it if they, if they want to pretend like they wrote it. I don't care. I mean, you're going to look like an idiot if you do that, but fine. <laughs> but no, I don't copyright my stuff uh, at all. And, and, and well, like I said, you can't copyright anything, but I try to release. Look, the problem with copyright, you can't even, if you're an author and you don't even like the system, you cannot, you can't opt out of the system. Um, so you'll have these people, I call them smart asses. They'll say like, um, well, if you're in favor, if you're against copyright, why don't, why do you copyright your works? And I'm like, well, not only do I not copyright my works, but I can't even get rid of the copyright. And they'll say, well, why don't you just say on your website, I hereby disclaim copyright? Well, the answer is that's not legally effective. I could say it, but then if someone wants to reprint my article or my book, they're, if they know what they're doing, they're, they're not going to rely upon an ineffective legal disclaimer. They're going to have to write me and ask me for permission because they know that under the copyright law, I have a copyright in it. So the the problem is not even that we don't have an. So the problem is not that we don't even have an opt out system. We, I mean, you can't even opt out of it. In my view, it should be an opt in system, like the patent system is. It's like you, you don't have a copyright unless you actively apply for it, maybe pay a fee and, and renew it every few years, and you know have a public registry so people can identify who it is to get rid of the so called orphan works problem where we have literally millions of books out there. And no one knows who owns the copyright, and so everyone's afraid to republish them. So we have this black hole of about 50 years' worth of, of books, literally millions of books, which are just disappearing because everyone's afraid to copy them. They're afraid to digitize them. They're afraid to make them public, and they don't know who to get permission from. That's called the orphan works problem. Okay, This is just horrible. This is a, a huge black hole of devastation in Western cultural heritage and knowledge caused by the censorship of the copyright system. So I'm sorry that the federal government gives me a copyright in my books and my works. And if I could just release it, I would, but they don't give me a way to do that. So I find it a little bit hypocritical and ironic when assholes uh, tell me, why don't you release it or why do you copyright your stuff when it's the fault of the system they're in favor of that I have it. You know, it's like telling Clarence Thomas, um, how dare you be a black guy that's against affirmative action when you benefited from it? You know, hmm. what is he? So I guess if you're black, you can't oppose affirmative action. Right. You know what I mean? It's this kind of argument. So I, I don't know what else to say about that. So I, I'm a musician and something that you run into in, in the music industry. And I've had friends that have, have run afoul of this is when you switch labels, when you sign a record deal, a lot of times that label wants to own everything that you uh, produce or any of the music yes. that you make underneath yes. them. And if you end up switching labels, a lot of times the new label actually has to pay for all of the music that you made on the old label. Otherwise you're not even allowed to perform your own songs when you go on tour underneath the new label yeah so th so th this is this is what's a little bit ironic and rich about these arguments for patent and copyright you'll have people say hey, what about the small inventor and what about the small artist so the remember i mentioned the history earlier about 
earlier there was a guild system, right? And there was the, uh, the, the, the scribe system and the stationer's company, uh, which controlled, um, um, especially for copyright, it controlled which books could be printed, things like that. And then the, the authors were in favor of the new copyright system under the Statute of Anne in 1709 because they thought, now I've got the power um, to decide who gets to publish my works. Now, the publishing companies were actually in favor of the Statute of Anne. Now, that should give you pause. You should wonder, why were they in favor of it? They were in favor of it because of what happened. What happened was you know, they knew that they – they would quickly step back into the place they used to hold, and that's what happened, and it's still happening today. You have a publishing industry which has basically replaced the guild system under the guise of the copyright system. So you have all these independent or small artists, and they have to give up their life. They have to sign away their their copyrights to become signed on to one of the publishing labels, right, the gatekeepers we can call them. And then, yeah – you're right. You can't even make a remix or, or derivative work or a new work based upon one of your earlier songs or articles because you don't even own the copyright to what you created yourself. So they're basically quasi-enslaved all over again. I mean this – remember Prince or the, uh, the symbol man um, <laughs> <laughs> carved uh, into his beard the word slave or something like that because he was so – Angry, and this is a very successful, popular, rich musician. This is not some no-name guy, right? And even he was quasi-enslaved because of the copyright restrictions that he had been forced to uh, concede before. So imagine what it's like for your average guy. So luckily, the internet is breaking down the gatekeeper barriers, and so you have a lot of people self-publishing in effect, and they're getting around the system, and it's starting to crumble and erode a little bit. Um, and the same thing with small inventors. You have people say, well, without a patent system, what about the small inventor? Well, I'll tell you what. If you come up with a new smartphone right now idea, if you try to sell it, you're going to be completely demolished by Samsung or Apple, right? You, you, you cannot afford $50 million or $10 million or whatever, even a million, even 500000 even $50,000 maybe to defend yourself against these, these juggernauts. So you're just not going to do it. You're going to either give up, not enter the field. So there's no doubt whatsoever. Uh, and, and furthermore, most inventors are employed by companies, and the employer owns the copyright. Uh, so this is not for the small guy. So all these myths about copyright and patent helping the small independent musician or the independent inventor are complete nonsense. And I – We'll stick on the music subject for a second. I don't know how familiar you are with the hip-hop scene, but uh, I personally am a huge fan of of underground hip-hop music, and uh, I think that some of the most rebellious music comes out of rock rock music and um, hip-hop music, so I really love those two types of music because the sense of rebellion is just overflowing in them. Um, But a lot – we have this thing in hip-hop called mixtapes, and it's where DJs Mm – DJs will take beats from popular songs and then they'll have uh, lesser known artists put their own lyrics on top of them. Or sometimes they'll take uh, there was a really a really popular one called the Grey Album where a DJ took the instrumentals from the Beatles White Album and he took mm-hmm. the lyrics from Jay-Z's The Black Album and he put mm-hmm. out one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most ingenious 
ingenious pieces of music that has ever been created, and it was completely illegal. And it's something that yes, it's something that has benefited. Even musicians have been inspired by this particular work, and and it's been praised and and, and received all kinds of awards and everything. Yet it was completely illegal, and we're having uh, we're having musicians like this who who are really creating just beautiful artwork, and um, because of the the way that the system is set up, we're basically turning. You know, we say that we need the system to protect creativity, but we're turning creators into criminals. You still there? Well, I agree completely. I mean, it's um, I'm I'm not as familiar as you are with it. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, I think we got a little bit of a lag. Sorry. Yeah. No, I agree completely with you, and um, um, I'm not as familiar with rap as you are, although I've heard of these examples, and I, I admire it myself. Um, Look, I saw a study recently that talked about um, which countries in the world are, are the most and least racist. And the U.S. was uh, in, among the best, the least racist. Like if you ask someone, would you care if your neighbor was a different race than you? But on the other hand, Americans favor policies like the drug war and the welfare system and the Federal Reserve and inflation and the business cycle, you know, that disproportionately harm, say, blacks. So they favor policies that are racist in their outcome, right? Um, so, and they favor bombing of brown people overseas. So, and they don't give a shit if, if brown people are killed and yet they cr- they go crazy if three people are killed in a, in a Boston marathon, right? So are they racist? I don't know, but the policies they favor have a racial outcome. And I think you could say something similar about copyright because hip-hop and rap music are disproportionately – anything that has involved sampling or remixing, which is the hip-hop type music, is basically crammed and creamed by copyright. So what you have is you have a cultural distortion. I mean we have some hip-hop. We have some remixing. We have some sampling. Would we have more? I have no doubt that we would have more if it was more free, right? So you could point to any number of examples in our culture of how copyright, for example, let's just forget about patent and even trademark, but how copyright um, has caused cultural distortion. Now, we get used to the way things are, but so, for example, like you said about um, uh, this song being illegal – so you, all these things go underground or they're banned on YouTube or, or whatever, you know, or people don't engage in it as much or they looked on differently. But another example would be um, um, there was a case a few years ago where um, this Omega, you know, this, uh, the watch company, they make a watch. They sell it for, let's say, I don't know, $10,000 here. And they sell it for $7,000 in, I don't know, uh, Argentina. I'm forgetting the country, some South American country. Um, it might be like nineteen thousand and ten thousand, but anyway, there's a difference. So Costco, you know, the big the big discount company here, they engaged in what's called arbitrage. They would actually send a peop- someone to go buy the watch down in Argentina and bring it here. They would sell it here for half the price, you know, for in, for an in between price, so they make a profit. And what Costco did was they started putting a little copyrighted logo, little globe logo on the back of the watch so that they could say that it wasn't 
that, that Costco couldn't resell it because of this first sale doctrine I mentioned earlier. Okay, so you have the point is that Costco adopted a style. They put a copyrighted logo on their watch to take advantage of copyright law for protectionist purposes. Okay, another example is this huge phenomenon we see of all these uh, uh, luxury uh, 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 fashion brands like uh, Chanel and Louis Vuitton and others, they put their logos on their bags, like their handbags and their, their, their clothes. Now, why would you do that? In other words, they put a, the purpose of a trademark is to identify the source of a good. So if I buy a suitcase, maybe on the handle somewhere there's a little Louis Vuitton logo, so I know where I bought it from, but it wouldn't be plastered all over it. The reason they did that is because there's no copyright in fashion products. So what happened is companies start taking advantage of trademark law. To, so they start embedding their trademark in their products so that they can stop you from knocking it off. So you have all these weird cultural distortions happening, right? And I think the hip-hop thing is another example of that, and it's – there's no telling what other distortions are happening or things that are unseen costs of of copyright that are totally distorting our entire cultural and uh, uh, and free market society that we that we we live every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do apologize because I think we do have a tiny bit of a lag, and we'll try and get that fixed during the next break. Uh, let's talk about Disney and other media companies that that use up. Um, things that would be, I guess, in the public domain, and then they take ideas like Rapunzel or Little Mermaid that have been stories that have been around forever, and then they effectively put copyrights on things that used to be public domain that they didn't even come up with, and now they can effectively stop other people from being able to use or interpret an idea that they didn't even come up with. Sure. So how do they get away with doing that? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were going to break. Oh no no we're gonna come we're gonna come up on a break in in about ten minutes but how do they get away with uh, with taking something that's a public domain thing and and turning it into something that only they can use like you can't even use the same idea uh, of 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 something that they've taken that was already public domain and now they've got the monopoly use on that particular idea. Okay, so the way it works is um, public domain means something that could be covered by copyright, but it's, it's not for one reason or the other. Either it's expired, like it's, it's too old, right? Like, I don't know, like uh, Beowulf, you know, or Shakespeare. Um, or it's, say, published by the, the federal government in the U.S., which explicitly has no copyright in what it does, like in the, in the, in the statutes that it writes. It would be kind of ironic if, in fact, some governments do this. They actually claim copyright in their statutes. So you have the governments basically saying ignorance of the law is no excuse, which is complete nonsense, right? But at least that means that you should be able to know what the law is. But then they have copyright in their laws so that it's illegal to reproduce their laws. So, you know, it's sort of like you're damned if you damn if you don't. But anyway, so uh, at least in the, in the federal government in the U.S., Federal pronouncements, federal works, federal laws are public domain, and so are very, very old things like Shakespeare's works, okay, or the Bible. Um, so 
that's a public domain work. Now, the way copyright works is it says that you have a copyright in any original creation that you come up with, okay? And the copyright includes what's called derivative works, okay? This is a key term, and most people that defend copyright don't even understand this, and so they'll, they'll say that all copyright protects is me making a literal copy of what you do, but that's actually not true. It actually includes derivative works, which means – so, for example, if you wanted to make a Star Wars sequel, right, or if you wanted to write a sequel to the novel Catcher in the Rye, you actually couldn't do that. In fact, there's a court case which the court actually literally banned someone who made a sequel to Catcher in the Rye, and they couldn't sell the book, which is normally called – censorship or, or book burning or something, book banning. So and that's um, kind of... So oh. what happens is if there's a public domain idea... Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, that's kind of crazy because um, it, it's it's the idea that, uh, that even if I'm no longer going to try and, and use an idea or build off an idea, I can still stop everybody out there from from building on something that I created. So what, what you're doing is you're getting a copyright in the derivative work. So, so let's say Hansel and Gretel is well-known or Cinderella or whatever. Okay. So if, if you come up with your own unique interpretation of it, then you have a copyright in your own new spin on it. So that's what D- Disney had. Disney has uh, – so, for example, it, when the Mickey Mouse copyright expires, which it will, I think, in, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years – uh, they, I mean, they've done all they could. They, they've done all they can to keep extending the copyright. In fact, people call the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, which added 20 years to the copyright term back in the 80s or 90s. Um, they call it the Mickey Mouse, you know, Copyright Extension Act. But I think it's finally going to run out. But even when it runs out, Disney will still have a copyright in their, say, more recent movies about Mickey Mouse. Just not the not the original Steamboat Mickey or whatever, which no one cares about anymore, right? So that's the way it works. So, so if you if you come up with a movie based upon some old myth, then you have a copyright in that artistic expression in that movie. Um, and let's kind of uh, well, we've only got a, about a minute before the next break, but as far as all of that stuff goes, it seems like a lot of these big giant companies are basically just using copyright, uh, like you were like you were mentioning with Apple and, and creating a barrier to entry. It seems like instead of uh, instead of you know the old tired argument that copyright is there to to inspire innovation, it seems from media to technology to uh, seeds and everything, it seems like pretty much t- copyright is being almost exclusively used to hold back and, and put the brakes on advancement. And uh, it seems like, you know, where where they sell us the Patriot Act because it's going to protect us or it's going to keep us safe and, and it really is used for the opposite, the war on drugs to keep our children safe and it's, us- it's actually used for the opposite. It seems like this whole system of copyrights is sold to us as a way to protect the little guy, and in reality, it's it's just another set of laws that are there to protect the people that are already, uh, you know, the the major giants of the industry. Yep, I totally agree. Happy to talk about it further. 
Okay, sweet. We're going to take a break. Um, I'm going to try and disconnect and reconnect with uh, Stefan Kinsella, and we'll try and uh, try and get these audio issues worked out because they're making it a little bit uh, hard for me to <laughs> continue the conversation. But uh, we're going to take a real quick break, sell some products, and when we come back, more on copyright, patent, and censorship and uh, technology that's actually posing the possibility to undo all of this madness. This is Live Free FM. Stick with us. We'll be right back. gentlemen boys and girls welcome back to the show this is live free fm i'm your host nathan frazier we're broadcasting live on the truth frequency radio network ucy.tv and unbound radio i want to say a big thank you to everybody that's picking up the stream and a huge thank you to everybody in the chat room it looks like donna damn defiant just showed up jacks rocks as well um queen kylie and modern man is there what's up modern man everybody a bunch of anonymous listeners too this has been a really popular show tonight and um it's no wonder why we've got stefan kinsella i keep wanting to stay i i keep messing mixing your name up with stefan molyneux i apologize for my stuttering on that but we've got stefan kinsella and we've been talking about uh copyrights and intellectual property and a whole bunch of stuff tonight it's been an awesome episode so if you're just now tuning in, um, as soon as the as soon as the the show is mixed down, I'll have it up on LiveFreeFM.com, and you guys can check that out. I try to get them out uh, two or three days after the show airs. I try to get it all mixed down. And um, if you guys want to check out more of the show, if this is your first time listening, because I'm I'm assuming a lot of the listeners that are here today are probably here because of the guests. So if this is your first time listening and you're enjoying the show and you want to check out more, go over to LiveFreeFM. FM.com and check out we've got a ton of archives over there um, very empowering and thought-provoking conversations with lots of guests and sometimes it's just me and my crazy ranting so if you guys are enjoying it go and check out more because there's definitely lots of more lots more of great conversations and great uh, thought-provoking episodes over there um, we were we were talking about, actually, I don't even remember exactly where we left off, but I kind of wanted to direct the conversation into uh, the past and where it's going as far as IP goes. And we've, we've seen a huge crackdown on things like Napster, and that was really Napster was the first time that my, uh, the intellectual property kind of thing peaked up on my radar because I thought it was just ridiculous that um, people would say that you can't use your computer and if you buy a CD, you're not allowed to share it with your friends. I thought it was just as ridiculous as saying you couldn't burn a CD for your friends. And then I realized that this is actually a, a conversation that's been going on a lot longer than that. And um, as far as, you know, 
hand-to-hand media goes, it's something that's been going on since VCRs and cassette tapes. How has the the conversation, the discussion, the argument evolved since the early 80s when we had things like uh, cassette, recordable cassette tapes and recordable, recordable VCRs? Because I know that those technologies were um, opposed and fought against by the major media companies as, as well as so, you know, in the same fashion that we're seeing file sharing being fought against. Well, I mean, it started with the, you know, the Gutenberg printing press, right? I mean, the people that wanted to control thought and distribution of content started with the idea of the printing press. They they hated the idea that you could print things without control. So they had the scribes and stationers company, et cetera. And then fast forward to the modern age, um, you know, they – the uh, the content creators hated the idea of printed music, and then they hated the LP, right? Then they hated the radio. They hated radio. They thought it was going to kill performing music, right? They hated remote controls. They hated the VCR. They hated the DVR. They hated digital music. They hated cable TV. <laughs> they hated D- DVDs, Laserdisc, everything. They fight them all. So... There, there all, there's always a fight between people that are trying to stick with their entrenched monopolies and freedom. Um, you know, I'm reminded of um, um, there's these bizarre regulations like you can only use your TV to broadcast the Super Bowl if it's less than 55 inches, like at a church or something like that. <laughs> I mean, there's all these insane regulations. And I mean, I think just yesterday or the day before, a friend sent me – he was leaving a movie. Actually, I think it was Elizabeth Higgs, a female, Bob Higgs' wife on Facebook. She was leaving a movie, and there was a big poster with like this bizarre, ominous, Orwellian thing like uh, saying if you, if you film this movie with your video – with your cell phone or something during the movie, you can go to prison for several years. And I'm thinking like, you know, what company – would actually threaten their guests with prison for a, you know a kind of minor infraction of the rules. This is insane. Yeah, absolutely. But that's it's like you were saying. It's it's about the protection of their monopoly. And uh, one thing that I always thought was weird is is just the idea that it, you know if 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 I buy a cassette tape and there's radio waves out there putting out this free music why should i not be able to use what i paid for to capture something that's freely available or if i want to buy something and make a copy of it why should i not be able to um, make a copy of of something that i've already purchased i can understand people not wanting me to uh use their hard work and try and make money off of it. And I can, I can understand why people wouldn't want that. I don't really agree that it's not okay to do it, but right, I can understand right. why people wouldn't want me to do it. But to be able to, um, to make a copy that I'm not even financially benefiting from, even that is illegal to do. And that's what we see with like, uh, with all of these, um, I know that, I had to twist your arm to get you on the show tonight because you're, I, I made you miss the newest episode of Mad Men. But we can actually go on 
online, as soon as the show's over tonight, you could go to like free TV or something like that, and you can actually watch it if you missed the episode. Um, and these people aren't making any money off of it. Maybe the advertising pop-ups that pop up, they might make a few cents or whatever, but it's not like they're trying to benefit off of somebody else's work and trying to sell somebody else's work. And even that is considered illegal. Even when you're not making any kind of money, you're just sharing something with the world. It seems kind of ridiculous that sharing, we're told sharing is so awesome, yet at the same time, sharing can land you up in jail. Well, yeah, I I mean, look, there's the moral issue, there's a practical issue, right? I mean, the uh, I don't pirate things myself personally, uh, not for moral reasons. I don't think there's anything immoral about pirating at all, but I don't do it because uh, I'm a patent lawyer, and if I get caught, I can't say I'm stupid. I don't know what I'm doing, right? <laughs> I have no excuse. So I don't do it. Plus, I can afford it. But the point is, so, so the other day, uh, I have a son, a young child, and I was telling him about this great movie, Cocoon, that I used to, I watched when I was in the 80s, when I was a you know, younger guy. And I thought he would like it. So I tried to find it on Netflix. Not there. I tried to find it on Apple TV. Now, I'll buy it for I'll rent it for three dollars, six dollars, or I'll buy it for twelve, whatever. Not there. You know, so I look all over, I can't find it. Now, the average person now, the person who makes cocoon, I mean the company that makes cocoon, why aren't they making it available legally? Are they lazy? Are they stupid? Are they just I, I don't know what's going on, right? But they're they're taking they're obviously taking advantage of the current system because they don't have to do it. Right? Now, the average consumer would just go pirate it, right? I didn't do that. I found it on Amazon and the DVD, which I never buy DVDs, and I actually bought the DVD so I could play it for my son. Now, most people won't go through that trouble to do it, right? It's ridiculous. So I think that you have people that are lazy and they're resting upon the inertia of the current system, right? They can get away with this model for a while, but it's going to eventually catch up with them. And 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 speaking of ridiculous uh, uh, copyright assertions, just a day or two, you may have heard about this. There's this phenomenon called like something like Play Me or whatever, where, where like um, if you like a video game or a computer game, you can go online and watch a YouTube video of some expert playing it for like an hour or two, mm-hmm. with like an audio track explaining how he does this or whatever. And now the video game companies are saying it's a copyright violation, and they want either in on the revenue or they want to stop it or whatever. Now, forget about the copyright claim, which is ridiculous. What company would – I mean, why? if you're a video game company, why would you want to stop someone from promoting your video game on YouTube? It just makes no sense whatsoever. But they are so entrenched in this system where you have to stop people that are not officially licensed, you know? I mean, you're not going to replace – I mean, someone that likes your, your computer game is not going to replace it with a YouTube video watching someone else play it. That's not a replacement. It's not a substitute. At most, they're going to want to go buy the game if they see how cool it is. So why they would stop fans from showing people how they play the game is crazy. And the other arbitrary thing about a copyright law is l- let's say you have a Nintendo system or Xbox at your house. And you play it, and you show your friends how you're playing. You can do that. Well, copyright says you can't broadcast it. You can't, so what does that mean? You can show five people, but you can't show 17? 
I mean, the lines are totally arbitrary and non. They make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> yes, but that seems to be a consistent thing with the legal system. It seems like a majority of laws uh, that they use to just basically pro- pro- or persecute these victimless crimes or prosecute victimless crimes. It seems like a lot of it is is completely arbitrary. Um, it, one thing that you were talking about when you said cocoon. Uh, and, and how hard it was for you to find, and you had to invent, eventually buy a DVD. I don't know if you remember the old Adam West Batman TV show, but that one, you can't even get it on DVD, where, where we have all these old box sets of old TV shows, you know, season one through three and on DVD or whatever. The old Batman show, you, there's no way to get access to that show other than to pirate it or hopefully catch it on reruns, because that show was produced by Fox. Fox, and Warner Brothers currently owns the copyright on the Batman character, and neither one of them will budge. So, one of, the, in my opinion, one of the greatest TV shows ever. There's no way to get it other than to pirate it because there's a conflict on who owns the copyright for the show, and neither company will allow the other one to put it out. Yeah, I've heard something similar about one, the Wonder Years, which I was not a fan of, but uh, apparently there's lots of this. Uh... I don't know, it's 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s music built into the soundtrack. And they, they didn't clear the rights for the music for, I guess, you know, redoing the, the uh, selling the uh, the DVDs. So you can't find the Wonder Years at all because they, they just couldn't clear the copyrights for all the music in the background. So they're just screwed. And I've also heard, like, you know, like the James Bond series and the Star Trek series – they were like delayed for years, several times in a row, because of copyright disputes. And also, the Lord of the Rings, of course, Lord of the Rings. That's... I mean, you know that original animated series. It's missing like half of the second third because they didn't get the copyright on that part. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous, and it really shows the arbitrary nature of of where it comes down because it's just like. Well, we're going to make this decision right here, and it's not going to apply here, but it is going to apply here. Well, why? What's the logical basis for that? Well, because we said so. Yeah, I think we, we, we need to step back as people that believe in liberty and free expression and free markets and, and property rights. We need to think, do we really want the government giving monopolies to people saying, you have the domain over this idea? Or you have the domain over this invention. And you can actually get the court to tell someone else they can't sell this pattern of information. They can't use this invention with their own property. It's really, really antithetical to individual liberty and private property rights. And and I hate to keep falling back on music, but music is a huge part of my life. To take it to the extreme, I used to work in a, I used to uh, manage at a bar, and we had um, local bands come in, and they would play. And we actually got hit with a cease and desist from um, ASCAP because somebody it got out that one of the bands that came in would sometimes throw in a cover song into their rotation of songs. And so, realistically, when you really look at what this what this is doing, these these this whole legal system of intellectual property, it's saying that if I figure out a way to play a guitar, I put my fingers here and I strum these particular strings, if I copyright or if I get the the, the monopoly on how to strum my fingers over the strings in this particular pattern, I have 
a, a higher claim of right over everybody else's body and every other every other yes. guitar in the world to where now you can't use your own fingers and your own guitar to or to to make a similar sound because i and it's just ridiculous because it's like if you if you honestly believe that and you carry it out to its full extension what you're saying is whoever was the first person to strum the guitar that way now has a higher claim and and basically is making slaves out of every other musician out there and it's like them saying that they have a higher claim of how they're allowed to use their own fingers than the than the duplicating musician does no actually that's the fundamental problem with, with IP, intellectual property is that it basically look let's think about it this way if you've heard of um uh, uh like these uh these covenants restrictive covenants in, in a neighborhood right like where you have a bunch of houses homeowners and they all agree with each other that we have to get each other's permission if we're going to do something crazy like you know have a have a pig farm or paint our house all red or whatever right they have certain standards now in in the law that's called a a, a negative servitude or maybe a negative easement in the common law in other words I own my house. I can use it. Only I can decide who comes in my house. I can use my house. I can cut my lawn. I can build a structure. But my neighbors have a sort of veto right. They can say, we can veto your painting your house bright orange because we've all agreed to that. right? Or we can veto you're using your property as a chicken farm or as a pig farm or whatever. So that's called a negative servitude, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a division of property rights if we agree to it. If I give you a partial right in my property, there's nothing wrong with that. It's like you and I co-owning a business or you and I co-owning a house or a, a piece of land. But the problem is that's what IP is. Patent and copyright are these negative servitudes or negative easements. They basically give third people, third persons – the right to tell you what you cannot do with your body or your property. So, for example, some guy that goes to the government office and gets a patent or a copyright can tell me I can't use my property in this way unless I pay him a fee or get his permission. So basically, part of my property right has been transferred to him, but I didn't agree to it. That's why it's a theft or taking property rights. And now what really annoys me is when people say, well, property rights are never absolute. I mean, what kind of argument is that? <laughs> so, I mean, you, you could shoot someone. You could say, I'm, I'm going to shoot you. G give me your wallet or I'm going to shoot you. And they say, well, you're, 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 you're violating my property rights in my body. And my response would be, well, come on. Property rights are not absolute. <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're, you know. I mean, come on, all property rights are limited, so how can you really complain that I'm going to shoot you? I mean, that's ridiculous. Just yeah. because there are some limits on what you can do doesn't mean that any limit you can think of is justified. Yeah, it's 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 really quite insane when you actually I mean, we've all been we've all been indoctrinated into it and we've all grown up with the system the way it is, but one and I really thank you for for putting out the work that you do because it was it was like I said, it was really hard for me to overcome the way I already felt about it, but once I started looking into your argument, it, it the whole 
the whole way that I had perceived intellectual property beforehand pretty much fell apart. I, I really want to end the conversation with how, where we're going forward. We're seeing, um, we're seeing people really stand up in mass against intellectual property. We're seeing things like SOPA and uh, CISPA and all of these these uh, enforcements or, or tr you know, trying to tighten the shackles of intellectual property. People are actually standing up in mass in resistance to these things. And uh, we're seeing things like Pirate Bay and, uh, and Mega Upload and all of these companies that are saying, you know, we don't really care what you guys say. We're going we're gonna to go ahead and do what we think is right. And now we've got this church of copy me where their whole religion is basically based off of the fact that people should be able to copy things. Um, as far as going forward, where do you see this trend of people resisting intellectual property going? And with new technologies like 3D printers, obviously the, the big companies are going to have a huge problem with 3D printers, but it doesn't seem like it's something that can be stopped now. It seems like something that's only going to continue to grow, just like VCRs eventually evolved into MP3 players and, and the technology grew despite the resistance of the monopoly holders. We, we have these new technologies like file sharing and 3D printers. Where do you think the, the resistance to intellectual property is, is going to go from here? Well, I think that there's a lot of inertia uh, in the in the legal system, so it's going to be a long time before we have patent and copyright undone legally. But luckily, you have the torrenting, encryption, digital technology, the pirate bay, the internet, uh, which is sort of eroding uh, copyright, which I think is a great thing. Um, and with 3D printing, I think you're going to start seeing something similar with patenting because, you know, if you have a 3D printer that's very advanced in your garage or in your local, you know, co-op or whatever down the street, and it's, you can just download the designs in an encrypted way through, you know, some kind of uh, pirate bay or maybe even with, uh, with, with, uh, with Bitcoin, who knows, because Bitcoin can evolve. Um, then I think that's one way to overcome patent and copyright. So I think basically these things are unnatural, right? They're monopolies. They're like cartels, and cartels are always unstable, and people can overcome them. And so I think that the advent of 3D printing and uh, bit torrenting and encryption are fantastic, great things, and hopefully – I mean, they're leading to the thrashing of the state. The, the, the copyright creators, the gatekeepers, they're thrashing. They're trying to maintain their monopoly. But hopefully it will only be a matter of time before they, they fail. That's my hope. Yeah, and that's my hope too. And I, I don't know how long you've been pushing the ideas of liberty or, or tuned into the ideas of liberty, but it seems like – uh, there's a ground swell. It seems like uh, the tide is finally starting to turn. I've kind of been um, tuned into this stuff for at least 10, 15 years, and uh, it seems like over the last like five to ten years, it seems like there's there's been a huge shift in the paradigm when it comes to liberty in general, but when it comes to um, things like you know freedom of of copying or freedom of uh, of 
of being able to produce what you want. And I think that people like you and there's there's other people out there also that have been very instrumental in in, in shifting the way that people look at these things. But it does seem like your guys' effort is actually paying off. It seems like that it, it hasn't been all for naught. Do you feel like... Uh, the effort that you put into this, do you feel like you're seeing an actual outcome from it? Well, I think in the, um, in the libertarian movement, let's say, I do, I do think I've seen in my life a shift. Um, uh, almost everyone I know that's principled and radical is anti-IP now. So that's libertarians. Um, I also think that there is a shift in society. I think that, so for example, um, it's still illegal to, you know, pirate movies or whatever, but I think people laugh at all these little warnings, these these stupid um, you wouldn't you wouldn't download a car so you wouldn't download a movie, you know, all these stupid PR <laughs> you know, and the warnings in the front of movies. I think people just disregard them. So I think they put up with them because they have to, but I, I don't think they respect them really like they do, you know. So I think like the drug war, gay marriage, um, uh, copyright people, they tolerate it because they have to. But I think that there's a new sort of awakening among people. I mean, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Uh, I do think there's going to be a big inertia. The problem is there's there's you know special interest groups and pressure groups, the R R I A and the M P A, um, and they pressure Holly. They pressure Congress big time. So I don't see any federal legal changes although i would be surprised if disney's able to extend copyright any further i think they've kind of gone as far as they can go so i think we've kind of reached the the you know the, the top of where they can go so hopefully the tide is turning uh conservatives free market people libertarians are all becoming more and more skeptical of these these monopolies and seeing them as what they are yeah absolutely and i think that's at least for me, it was done in huge part because of your work, and I'm sure that there's a lot of other people that owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to you as well. Before we're out of here, why don't you let people know again where they can go and check out your your uh, podcast and where they can go and check out more of your work? Because I'm sure that for my listeners that have never heard from you or heard of you before, this has probably sparked a huge amount of curiosity. So, where can people go and find out more about Stephen Kinsella? Sure. No, I appreciate the, uh, the the opportunity to talk here. And let me just say, people that haven't heard these ideas before, they're not easy to absorb. And I just want to make clear that you can you can think this way and be for private property, for individual liberty, and for the free market. It's not a communist idea. It's not socialist. It's not anti-private property. It's not anti-intellectual, not anti-creativity. Um, it's just a different perspective on what the government has done to our property rights system. Um, and I've written a lot on this, and I'm writing more on this. And if you want to find more, you can go to stephankinsella.com, S-D-E-P-H-A-N, Kinsella, K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A.com. And um, you'll find my, web, my, uh, my, my podcast there and lots of speeches and articles about this topic there.
All right, sweet. It's been an awesome conversation. We've covered almost everything that I wanted to cover, and I think that we laid out uh, the argument very well. So thank you for joining me tonight. I want to say thank you to all the listeners. Thank you to everybody that's picking up the stream. If you guys enjoy this program, please share it on social networking sites so that I can become famous. That's my ultimate goal in life. Until next week, this is Live Free FM. If you want to be free, you got to live free. Live Free FM, where we got faith in each other, not in authority. We'll catch you later. Peace. Did you enjoy the show? You can think of Live Free FM as a tasty meal for your mind and me as your waiter with impeccable service. Tonight's entree may have been on the house, but that doesn't mean you can't leave a tip. Visit the donate page at livefreefm.com. Just click the animated icon at the bottom of any page. We accept Bitcoin or PayPal. Thank you and come again. Government's violent monopoly has proven extremely inefficient at catching, let alone stopping, murderers, rapists, fraudsters, and thieves. Most government officials don't talk about how victimless crimes eat up over half of law enforcement's time and budgets, which diverts resources away from catching the real criminals, such as, once again, murderers, rapists, thieves, and fraudsters. Bush nor Obama nor their political parties will truly educate the populace on the one million peaceful people in cages right now, on your dime, even though they never harmed anyone else. Simply because a politician marked some ink on some paper, usually for a lobbyist of some sort. Why is it that victimless crimes are on the rise? It is a form of worker protectionism for police officers. It is much less risky to tackle, cage, and give a criminal record to a peaceful 18-year-old kid over marijuana than it is to risk your life chasing a real criminal. Last year in Philadelphia, there were a total of 334 murders. Just over half of them were actually solved. This leaves more than 150 of the 334 murders unsolved. Not only that, this year alone, rape is already up 9% in Philadelphia, with numerous rapists still on the loose, even as you listen to this right now. But it's no surprise that criminals are getting away scot-free while the system continues to focus on made-up, non-crimes. Most law enforcement officers like victimless crimes because it's the easy way out. And since they have a violent monopoly, they don't have to worry about competition from competitors trying to offer better protection services. Every second the police chase victimless crimes is time they don't have to chase real criminals that are actually dangerous to society unlike peaceful potheads or prostitutes or gamblers who have never infringed on anyone else's freedoms. It is cowardice, and any police officer that focuses on victimless crimes over real crimes is a criminal in and of him or herself. Let me get this straight. On May 18th, the Philadelphia government sent over 50 police to kidnap peaceful people at a marijuana rally, all while 150 murderers are still loose on the streets of Philadelphia. 
What a waste of time and resources. And just imagine the murderers and rapists that are still out there inflicting harm on others, creating more real victims. Ironically, just like the state. Then again, what do you expect from violent monopolies and political slavery? We can only expect things to get worse from here, no matter who's elected. Both parties have an interest in making sure you are nothing more than a serf to their violent mandates. After all, that is all government is. A violent monopoly that would go out of business without the use of violence on peaceful people. I bet the family members of the 150 murder victims will sleep well tonight, knowing that their murder investigations have had over half of their resources wasted on tackling peaceful people, while the murderers run loose in Philadelphia. Do you love Live Free FM? Do you love your friends and family? Well, why not introduce your friends and family to Live Free FM? You may be asking yourself, but how can I do this? It's simple. You can share. By simply clicking the share button, you can let everybody know that you're listening to Live Free FM. You can share it on Twitter. You can share it on Facebook. You can even share it on Google. It's the 21st century, and the internet has made sharing easy. Sharing is caring. Share Live Free FM with the people you care about today. Sharing, it's not just for pinko commies anymore.